Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. This uh, morning, we're going to be taking a look at a pretty extraordinary story, and it's the story of Esther. I'm reminded of this. Bob Goff tells of his love of playing practical jokes on his friends. Do you all know anybody like that? His friend Doug made the mistake of telling him where he was celebrating his 10th wedding anniversary and uh, the penthouse suite that he had prepared for just such an occasion. A few days later, he and his wife checked into the hotel. This is Bob Goff, by the way. Checks into the hotel as Doug and his wife. (laughs) They were handed the key, took the elevator straight up to the penthouse. They called room service. They ordered lobster and salmon And for dessert, they decided to have some bananas foster because they had never had it before and they just wanted to see how good it was. And it was so good that they ended up ordering seconds. And after finishing dinner and taking in the panoramic views, he said, they gave a huge tip to the waiter and the bill totaled more than $400. They tidied up the room and then left and Bob woke up the next day just thinking about Doug's reaction Uh, when he was going to be checking out to to see that service bill that he and his wife had done under their name in their room. That's quite a practical joke, don't you think? I don't know how many of you would still call that person a friend, but there you go. He's like, I just love practical jokes. Well, here was the thing. That went back and forth. And so if uh, you have this relationship, you would think, oh, he's gonna get me back. I mean, how many of you would feel that way? Bob Goff certainly did. Doug had been trying to get back at Bob for years. And uh, a few years later, <laughs> Bob Goff received a, a, a phone call from a man with a very heavy Ugandan accent who said, I'm not gonna do the accent, by the way. I, I know that's why you're here, but we're not. He said, Bob, I'm aware uh, of what you've been doing with children uh, in Ugandan prisons and for the work that you've been doing in our judiciary process. And I wanna thank you on behalf of the president of Uganda. Okay. He said, in fact, I'm so pleased, I want you to consider becoming the counsel of the Ugandan government. And Bob Goff's mind immediately went to his friend, Doug. He's like, this is it. He knew that this was the moment of final payback. So he decided to play along and everything that was asked of him, he just said yes. Yes after yes, Uh, during the conversation, until the man on the other end of the line said that he had to head back to Uganda, but would call in a couple of months when he returned. The next two months were very busy. Bob Goff is a pretty well-known pastor, by the way. The next two months were very busy, and Bob had forgotten about the call, but then one day, the phone rings, and it was the same gentleman on the phone asking for Bob to fly to New York to meet with him. And Bob was like, sure, and so... He does, he flies to New York. He heads to his hotel, fully expecting a note to be handed to him from his friend Doug saying something like, go ahead and have some more lobster, it's on me. But then a car with a Ugandan flag pulls up to the hotel and a man steps out of the vehicle and he introduces himself. Hello, I'm I'm the ambassador, Kunamawari. And Bob said, of course you are. And then he proceeds to introduce himself to several other Ugandan dignitaries. And he said this, I've got all the paperwork done for you to become the special consul to the US for Uganda. 
All you need to do is to give me a couple of passport pictures and I'll get the parliament to approve it. Four months passed and then the word came that he had gotten approved. He got a call not long after that from the FBI who informed him that they were doing a background check. A few weeks later, he gets his diplomatic credentials and they had a big ceremony and that's how Bob Goff became the consul of Uganda to the United States. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. He's sitting there thinking, man, Doug's really playing this one up today. Nope, you're the new consul to Uganda, friend. Welcome to your new job. Oh man, none of this is what Bob Goff thought was happening. And it'll be the same for the person that we're looking for today, a woman named Esther. A lot of things that happened in the life of this woman. And really none of it anybody saw coming. How many of you can say, I've experienced some of the work of God like that in my life. That when I thought God was not present and that absolutely nothing was happening in my life, I was even a little bit frustrated with God. All along, the hand of God was moving. And only on the other side of it could you look and say, Oh, I see it now. That's the way this story is going to go this morning. See, the story takes place in Persia, which, just so you know, is modern-day Iran. This is probably around 483 B.C., give or take. The capital was Susa, which is modern-day Shush, for those of you that are looking on your maps. The Jews had been in exile for about 100 years They'd been in exile because of their idolatry. And eventually God got to the point where he says, I'm fed up. They'd been taken by Nebuchadnezzar. Some of you have heard of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar defeated them, uh, he takes all of them in under his reign. But eventually Nebuchadnezzar gets defeated. He gets beaten by a Persian named Darius. And once Darius beats them, well, he gets all of the people that came from his kingdom. They became his. And Darius reigns for a while, and then eventually he dies and hands this over to a guy named Xerxes. Xerxes is the guy, the king, that's mentioned in the book of Esther. And so you look in Esther chapter 1. It's really interesting because you have King Xerxes, and he's drinking. And I don't mean water. He's drinking alcohol. And he's not drinking a little bit. He's drinking a lot. And while he's drunk, he orders his wife Vashti to come into the room. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 11, he says it like this. I want you to come into the room with her crown on her head. And the reason that he wanted that is so that all of the other drunk guys that were in the room with him could, quote, see her beauty. Now, apparently, Vashti was a real looker. But that's kind of a weird request, don't you think? I mean, guys, don't raise your hands. <laughs> but how many of you would say, I've got a great idea. I'm going to have my wife come in here. <laughs> Right? I'm going to show her off to all the guys. Here's the reason that this is so debated among people that look in this letter. is because the part where it says to see her beauty, we're not exactly sure what this means. I mean, the common practice back in the ancient Near East was for a woman to be veiled. So maybe the request was for her to come out in front of the men and to be unveiled. Right? So they see her beauty. Uh, that's one possibility. Another possibility is that she was going to come out only wearing her crown. We're not exactly sure. Either way, ladies, would you appreciate it if your husband made that request out of you? I didn't get any answers. I thought that was the easiest question of the day. <laughs> I'm gonna guess no. 
Uh, now, to her credit, let me like make a long story short. Uh, she says no to him. I'm not gonna do it. She's brave. And the king, just so you know, he's embarrassed because here he is, the king. And when you say no to the king, that can create some problems. In fact, the other, the other guys in the room kind of picked up on this and they're like, oh, that's not good. And in fact, we can't stand for it. In, verse, in chapter one, verse 18, catch this line. It says, before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Medea who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. Let me tell you what this basically means. It means you gotta make an example out of her for the rest of us because we can't have this stuff happening. You can't have the ladies going rogue, in other words. You need to put a stop to it. So what does Xerxes do? He's like, I'll put a stop to it. And he kicks her out. Uh, you're no longer going to be regarded as my wife. And now that you have a vacant chair, you have to find someone to occupy it. So what he does is he decides to set up a beauty pageant. And he's going to find someone to replace Vashti. And this is where one of the heroes of the story enters in. There was a Jewish orphaned girl who had been raised by her first cousin, a man named Mordecai. Her name was Hadassah, at least that was her given name. You know her as Esther. See, Esther is a Persian name that when translated to the Hebrew, it means hidden. And a lot of what you're going to see in the story of Esther is the hidden work of God in her life and in the people around her. And let me just say, she's a little bit good looking. And I'm not making that up. The Bible tells you that. In chapter two, verse seven, the young woman had a great figure and was lovely to look at. She's a knockout. So she enters into the pageant, so to speak. So how did he make the selection on who was going to replace Vashti? Well, this is the part of the story that uh, it's the way that they did it back then. I wouldn't recommend it today. What would happen is a woman would enter into the king's harem. He would appear before him. She would sleep with him. And then he would do that again with someone else pretty much every night until he picked the woman that was going to be his next queen. That's hardly a beauty pageant, but that's what they did. And what he does is he ends up selecting Esther to be his next wife. Now, what's interesting is, and if you look into the text, especially in chapter two, verse 20, when she enters into the contest, so to speak, she hid the fact that she was Jewish, which also means that she was hiding the fact about her belief in God. Now, there's some drama in this story. Matter of fact, there are layers of drama to this story. Let me tell you drama part number one. So you have Mordecai. Now, Mordecai, you remember, is the guy that raises her up. She's an orphaned kid. He takes her in. She's now given this position of being the queen. Well, some people think that Mordecai, because as it says, he was sitting at the king's gate. This is a place of honor, and it's a place of authority. And you go, well, how in the world did Mordecai get that? Some think maybe, well, it's because of his connection to Esther, who's now the queen. So the gate, as it is, is in the east, was a place where important business was done. Also the equivalent of modern law courts. And there you have Mordecai standing there. And while he's there, he hears this plot to kill Xerxes. That's a good thing to hear. Two of the guards, two of the most trusted people, 
have said that they're going to kill Xerxes. And Mordecai hears it. And what he does is, because of his connection to Esther, he goes to her and he's like, hey, there's a plot to take Xerxes out. Ultimately, his life is spared. Now, Mordecai is not, at least at this point, given any credit for it whatsoever. He just went to Esther and was like, hey, this has got to stop. And Esther goes to Xerxes and says, hey, you got some guys that are trying to kill you. And they put it to rest and his life was saved. Mordecai is a hero. Now, at this point, the only thing that happens is the record of Mordecai being the guy that saves the life of Xerxes was written into what was called the official chronicles. So basically a book. Now, it's not important yet. That's gonna be important here in a little bit. But that's some drama for you, right? Imagine that moment. Let me give you another moment of drama. There's a guy named Haman. And Haman is a high-ranking person in Persia. And he decides, largely because he can't stand Mordecai, he decides that he not only wants Mordecai to die, but he gets this plan together to exterminate all of the Jewish people that were under the rule of Xerxes. That sounds creepily familiar, doesn't it? We're gonna wipe all of them out. So what he does is he goes to Xerxes. Now remember, Esther has hidden her background from him. So Haman goes to Xerxes and he says, you know, these Jewish people that we took over, they have some weird customs and beliefs and practices and I think we, uh, I think we just need to kill them. We need to wipe them out. And this was his response. Xerxes responds in chapter 11, 3, verse 11. He says, well, look, do as you wish. Not the best response. However, Mordecai overhears the plan. That Mordecai, he's just in listening kinds of places, don't you think? He overhears the plan. And he goes to Esther and he says, we have a problem. There is this plan by a guy named Haman. And he wants to kill us and our people. And you need to stop this. Here was Esther's response in chapter four, verse 11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has one law, that they will be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Here's another way of saying it. You don't just walk in, not even me. And you asking me to do it, uh, you gotta think about what you're asking me to do here. This is basically a death sentence. Here was Mordecai's response to Esther, because he gets it. It's a big thing to ask for. In chapter four, verses 13 and 14, he sends a messenger with this reply to Esther. Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? And here's the moment. Here's the line. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Maybe what has been given to you was exactly for this moment right here. And you didn't even know it when you were given the position. Maybe this is your time. And here is her answer in chapter four, verse 16. I'll go to him. Uh, even though it's against the law, I'm gonna go to him. And she said, if I die, I die. Now that, my friends, 
is a deep faith, don't you think? That is a deep faith. I'll receive it. If doing what is right means that I die, I will still do what is right. You've got to appreciate her in this moment. So she gets an idea. How do I go to the king? What do I say to him? Haman, you have to remember, is a man of position and authority. So that makes it tricky too. So she gets this idea, and you see this in chapter five. To have Haman for a banquet with her and Xerxes. It's kind of a private affair, so to speak. And uh, Xerxes, just so you know, says, yeah, that's totally fine because there'd been this moment where like, she dances for him and after she's done, you know, he's like, I'll give you half the kingdom. She must be pretty good. I'll give you half the kingdom, whatever you're asking for. She's like, well, let's have dinner. And at dinner, her plan was to say, Haman has planned to wipe out all of the Jewish people and I want that to not happen. So here's what happens. While they're at the table, banquet number one, Xerxes asks her what she wants. So imagine being at the table, Xerxes, Haman, Esther. And instead of saying, hey, Haman has a plot against my people, she says, um, let the king and Haman come again for a banquet tomorrow. Why, did, why didn't she just answer it then? She, she hesitates, like she pauses, she balks. What made her stop? Well, to be honest with you, my friends, even if you read it, there's nothing that tells you why she stopped. But here's why Esther didn't tell. We don't know. Um, however, however, had she told the plan at, for, at the first banquet, there were a number of things that wouldn't have happened. So hold on to it. Let me give you a little bit of background. When Haman was given the higher command, he was having everyone bow to him. Mordecai, just so you remember, I said Mordecai and Haman, they don't get along. Why is that? It's because Mordecai was a guy who was like, I'm not gonna do that. Haman didn't like it. And that's when he says, okay, that's fine. It's the end of you and everybody like you. That's why he hated him. Uh, he even tells his wife about Mordecai. And here's what they came up with. The plan over, I guess, dinner or whatever is, you know what you need to do? You need to go ahead and to build the gallows so that you can hang that guy high and everybody will see that as an example. You know what Haman said? That's a great idea. And so builds the whole thing up. There's a little bit of background. But now, flash forward. You have the banquet, right? You've got, Mordecai, you've got uh, Haman, you've got Xerxes and Esther sitting at the table. Esther never says anything. That evening, King Xerxes isn't sleepy. How many of y'all feel like that at night? I have the hardest time going to sleep. Thanks, melatonin. He didn't have any melatonin. So here's what he did. <clears throat> he wants to read the Chronicles. Do you remember I mentioned a book earlier where when Mordecai saved the life of Xerxes, no one gave him the credit for it except his name was written as the man who saved him and put in the Chronicles. Well, here you've got Xerxes going, I don't know, I can't go to sleep. Can you bring me the Chronicles to read? That'll put me to sleep. The Chronicles, just so you know, is the record of his reign and other things that were happening. And there he finds out something. As Xerxes is reading, he sees that Mordecai is the one who saved him when the plot against him had occurred. And when he asked what reward he had received, the answer you see in Esther 6.3 is this, none. Hold on. This guy saves the king's life and nobody ever rewarded him with anything? And the answer is, 
Yeah, that's right. Well, you can imagine Xerxes just wasn't okay with that. So he says, hey, go get Haman. Go get Haman and bring him to me. We gotta talk about this. We gotta make a wrong thing right. And when he comes to Xerxes, he is asked, hey, this is chapter five, verse five. What should we do for this guy and honor him? Now, Haman is standing in front of the king and he thinks he's talking about not Mordecai, but him. That's an awkward moment, right? Uh, By the way, just so you know, that's the most Haman thing that you can get when you read the book of Esther. Every great thing is about me. And there's this moment. We need to celebrate this guy. How should we do it? And here's what they came up with if you were to look at chapter six, verse seven and nine. Give him a king's robe, a, a horse that the king has ridden, and a royal crest on his head. That's kind of what they came up with. That's a big deal. Give him king's things, right? His horse, that's a big deal. But the last part, when he says, put the royal crest on his head, that's basically saying, let's just make this dude the heir apparent to the kingdom. Haman, now who does he think this is about? Himself. Haman's like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And then Xerxes says this. So go get Mordecai so that I can put him in this position. Uh Uh-oh. That's the part where Haman is like, whoa, we have been talking past each other the whole time. But if you're Haman, there is no good place to go with this, right? There is no good place to go with this. So he goes home. He tells his wife, you can imagine he's moping when he walks into the house, tells his wife and friends what happened. And they're like, yeah, well, there's nothing you can do at this point, right? I mean, this guy saved the king's life. You mess with him. uh, You try, you die. Pretty much what they would say. And right then, they're having this conversation in the house and there's this at the door. All right, opens it up. And who is it? It's the king's people saying, Haman, you need to come back for dinner. Remember, she had said, can we have another banquet tomorrow night, just the three of us? And the answer was sure. Well, it's dinner time. This is not Haman's best day. Is that fair? And when the king calls on you, my friends, you go. And so he goes. Here's what happens at dinner. At dinner, Xerxes says to Esther, kind of like before, all right, so you were gonna be asking me something last night and you kind of hesitated, you didn't give an answer, but what is it that you wanted to ask me? And in chapter seven, verse three, she says this. If the king allows it, I would like for me and my people to be spared because we have been sold for destruction. Me and my people. Okay, what is Xerxes' response? You see it, chapter seven, verse five. Who is he? And where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Now, we think Haman's looking like right now. Who did it and where is he? Well, the good news is, is he's not far, (laughs) right? That's him. That's the guy. Now imagine being Xerxes for a second. You're sitting at the table. This man is in an honored position and you find out because he wasn't paying attention before. You find out that the plot would literally include the wiping out of his own wife. You gonna be okay with that? Here's his reaction. Chapter seven, verse seven. Xerxes got up in a rage, left his wine. He didn't even finish his Messina people. 
he leaves his wine and he goes out into the garden. He is furious. What do you think Haman knows at this point? I'm a dead man. So he goes in. Remember, Xerxes is out there in the garden, probably calming down or whatever. He thinks, I've got one shot here. I don't know why he would think this, but he thinks it. I'm gonna go to Esther. So Haman goes to Esther and begs him to save her. In chapter seven, verse eight, Haman falls on the couch where Esther was reclining. And right at that moment, Xerxes walks in. Okay, stop for a second. You're already ticked off at the guy, and rightly so. You walk out to have a cool down session. You walk back in and this guy's laying on the couch where your, your wife is laying down and you're laying down. How do you think that looks to him? So he thinks, if you look at it, he thinks that he is there touching her inappropriately. And Xerxes is just like, dude, mm. oh man. I mean, now imagine for a second being Haman in that moment. This guy's like, let's all just go to bed. Right? The day can't possibly get worse for him. If I were to rewrite a book, he would call it Haman and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. It is all going wrong for this guy. So here's the catch. Here's what Xerxes kind of pieces together. You know, you're gonna die. And the good news is, is we have some gallows out there where you can do it. Oh man, these are the gallows that he built so that somebody like Mordecai could die. Not so that he could die. That wasn't what it was for. Isn't it interesting? He's hanged on the instrument of death that he had built to kill others. The very thing that he built would be the source of his own death. So he dies. I didn't want that part to be dramatic. He dies. Here's the problem. There's a law that's in place. And the law said that the Jews were to be wiped out. You remember that? You ever heard of the phrase, let it be according to the Medes and the Persians? Have you ever heard that before? Because if you have, here's what it means. It means that it's a law that you can't change. Let it be. That, that's not good. But God works in a way to make things turn around. And I wanna give you a couple of examples that you see in the way that this beautiful story unfolds. Let me give you a few examples. Here's the first, and you see it in chapter eight, verse one. Everything that Haman owned was given to Esther. Now, earlier, remember, he says, I'm gonna need an army, I'm gonna need all this stuff. We're about to start wiping these people out. Okay, that was a lot of money that he gave to Haman. All of that came to her. It reminds me of Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. There just comes a time where God says, you thought you had it all, but you don't. And everything that you thought you had wasn't yours. I'm taking it from you and I'm giving it to them. This was her moment and he gave it to her. That's a turnaround, wouldn't you agree? Here's a second turnaround and you see it in chapter eight, verse two. Uh, Xerxes takes off the signet ring, which by the way, is a ring of authority, which means you can represent the king. And he had given it to Haman, and now he gives it to Mordecai. You're gonna be my guy. And you're gonna have every ability because of this signet ring 
to literally sign things for me. It's as if you have my authority. I would say for the life of Mordecai, that's a pretty substantial turnaround, don't you? One minute from being hunted to next minute having the king say, this is who you're gonna be in my kingdom. A tremendous place of power and responsibility. That's quite a turnaround, don't you think? Here's a third one, and you see it in chapter eight, verse seven. Esther appealed to revoke the letter of Haman. Remember, wipe out all the Jews. Uh, But since the law can't be changed, the king gave Mordecai the right to use his signet ring and to officially make this statement because now he has the power, right? And you see it in chapter eight, verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and to protect themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. Now, what does that mean? I can't change the law, but everybody's gonna think twice before they come after you. Maybe they have this plan to wipe you out, but you don't have to sit there and take it. That's quite a change, isn't it? Because they were slated for extermination and now they're given every provision by the highest man in the land to do something about it. And everybody's like, I think we're good. I think we're good. I would say that's quite a turnaround, wouldn't you think? And let me give you one last example. And you see it in chapter eight, verse 17. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king had come, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration, much like what we just did at Thanksgiving, right? But here's the part of the verse that I love in chapter eight, verse 17. It says, and many uh, people of other nationalities became Jews because of the fear of the Jews had seized them. They saw the kind of thing that their God could do and they said, we're coming to him. People from other nations were coming in On the front end of this story, let me ask you a question. You're Esther. You feel like this is everything that's going on when you're entering a beauty pageant? I'm I'm gonna guess the answer is no. Mordecai, do you think that Mordecai saw all of this stuff coming? I'm gonna guess the answer is no. But what you see threaded throughout this entire little powerful book is that most of the time where we can't see the hand of God at work at all, is precisely the time when his hand is at work the most. And it's like, watch, just watch. You remember Bob Goff? Remember, consul to Uganda, <laughs> right? Remember that story? He wrote, he wrote about this later. Here's what he, he said, and I wanna read it to you. He said, I think God sometimes uses the completely inexplicable events of our lives to point us toward him. We get to decide each time whether we will lean in toward what is unfolding and say yes, or we can back away. The folks who were following Jesus in Galilee got to decide the same thing each day because there was no roadmap. There was no program. And in their lives, certainly there was no certainty. All they had was this person, a person to come to see and a person to accept. He said, so the next time God asks you to do something that is completely inexplicable, that requires a decision or courage uh, that goes way over your pay grade, something that might even save lives, say yes. Say yes. What a beautiful story. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.